My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 7th, 2011. <laughs> Sorry, I-, I was reading something. It made me laugh. I felt victorious. <laughs> That's my victorious laugh. <laughs> what am I doing? program is on and I'm losing my mind. (sighs) Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough and I am your servant in Jesus Christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what uh, people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. So, you know, there's no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We do the comparative work, and, uh, well, it's not politically correct. We name names. We let you hear people say the things that they're teaching in their own voice. We don't try to hide, uh, you know, who we're talking about or anything like that. So uh, as a result of it, what we do, uh, it it steps on people's toes. It might even upset some folks. And uh, the important thing here is, is that this is biblical discernment work comparing people's teaching and doctrine to what God's Word says. And we, whenever possible, as, as often as possible, want to do this in long form. And what I mean by that is, is that we want, you to hear, um, we want you to hear a lot of what per, a person is saying so that you can uh, make the decision yourself as to whether or not that's really what God's Word teaches or not. Anyway, uh, looking at today's program, <laughs> oh, man. Um, you know, um, I, I think maybe I, it's best if I did this. Um, I, I, there's a lot of things I, I need to discuss on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Not sure if I'm going to get to them all, and chances are when I'm not certain that I'm going to get to all of them that I probably won't get to all of them. Um, so let's kind of just, you know, 
work through what we need to work through here, and uh, and we'll kind of go from there. Uh, one of my uh, one of my listeners who has also befriended me on Facebook, her name is Lisa, and Lisa wrote the other day, and she said, "Yeah, Chris, uh, you need to preface your sheep beating sound by with uh, a disclaimer that says no sheep were harmed in the making of this audio." Now, if you're not sure what she's talking about, uh, th- here is the uh, here is said audio. Yeah, that's my uh, that's my sheep beating uh, sound, and uh, I played that in honor of uh, well, this sheep beating that occurred uh, from Perry Noble. You should remember. I think that you officially suck as a human being if that's your if that's your focus. Yeah, that, that that was Perry Noble beating his sheep there at uh, at New Spring Church, and so uh, Lisa, you know, I I I apologize that I may have caused some confusion that uh, due to the wonders of technology that you may have or other people may have inadvertently thought that I actually went out to a pasture with my golf club and started beating on sheep and that there were sheep that were harmed uh, as a result of fighting for the faith. Well, I, I assure you that no sheep were harmed in the making of this audio soundbite, so I, I just wanted to pass that along. <sighs> yeah, I, I, I feel better now. And so now we've got that behind us. So in, in the future, if I should play the sheep beating... Um, music then you'll understand that uh, that no sheep were actually harmed in the making of that audio soundbite all right uh man where do we go from here you know here it is it it, it's the 7th of july and in the united states uh, you know our big holiday is the 4th of july and the 4th of july uh you know i was in estes park colorado speaking at the free lutheran youth convention and i missed one of the most important uh internet 4th of july events ever and and that would be the uh, the release of the latest William Tapley song. Um, yeah, here, listen. The, the name of this one is Freedom is Not Free. you dear it may cost your life too true William Tapley co-prophet of the end times and 30 of the apocalypse when the flag flies high and your spirits soar don't forget the ones has about the same production quality as that last song of his that we, we, uh, that we reviewed. That would be the um, <clears throat> Doom and Gloom Coming Soon. Who gave their all? Don't forget the men and women serving overseas. Pray they all come safely home. Let's get down on our knees. Oh, God, our help in a past we need your help once more if we obey your prince of peace 
peace, he'll keep us out of war. Uh, oh, man, that is, that is, that's horrible. That is just awful, Ed. And I missed it when it came out. I yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have the best internet connection, and you know, and oh man, I'm I'm just sad that I didn't get to hear that uh, while it uh, when it previewed, you know, there on the Fourth of July. Um, moving along. Have you ever felt like you've birthed something? Now, th- those of you women out there uh, who've, who've actually had children, um, the, I'm sure you're answering in a very strong, emphatic affirmative that you feel like you have birthed something. Um, well, <laughs> uh, Melissa Fisher, who's uh, part of the Patricia King gang and whose videos appear at xpmedia.com, uh, she has just posted a video about birthing your next level. I, um, now I don't know if uh, if if while you're trying to birth your next level, um, I I don't know if you should do that naturally or if you should have drugs. I don't know. Um, and after watching the video uh, that I'm about to play here right now, I'm still uncertain as to whether or not you need to you know take pain meds while birthing your next level. Um, but yeah, here's Melissa Fisher. Hey everyone. Just recently, I went on a vacation, and it was relaxing. I had a great time with the Lord, you know, just all around, just great vacation. But when I got back and I woke up the next morning, it felt like I had been hit with a ton of bricks. I felt so tired, and I felt like I was just dragging. Now, this wasn't one of those vacations where you go around and you pack your schedule. This was actually a relaxing vacation where I spent a lot of time with God. And so I meet my friend the next day, and she said she felt the same way. And then she goes on to say, well, it's because I just birthed something. And I was like, ah, bingo, that's it. Apparently, the phrase "birthed something" doesn't have any particular meaning anymore. It could mean just about anything. Are you experiencing a, a feeling of malaise? Are, are you feeling melancholy? Do you feel like you've been hit with a ton of bricks? And do, do you just feel like, Bleh. well, it means that you've birthed something? <laughs> Hang on a second. I I, I need a uh, just a small break from that. <laughs> And yes, he is playing a Casio. Or they'll take away our bill of rights. So don't be lukewarm. Stand up straight and proud. 
strong and loud. Uh, okay, okay, back to uh, Melissa Fisher here, who just uh, revealed that she birthed uh, something. I don't know what that means, but... Because I had been doing so many things that I went on vacation and finally got to really get before the Lord, and in that time, I birthed something. Can you hold it up for us? I mean, if you birth something, you know, can we see it? I birthed my next level. You birthed your what? <laughs> you, you what? Hang on a second. Words apparently have no meaning anymore. Hang on. That I went on vacation and finally got to really get before the Lord. And in that time, I birthed something. I birthed my next level. Next level of what? I mean... Are you talking about, like, the next level in Farmville? Are you talking about the next level, uh, you know, in, in a game you're playing on, you know, on on the PlayStation 3? What are you talking about? Now, before this, I had felt dull. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. My duties started to become, like, drudgery. And I was like... Oh, you know, the passion I used to have, and I was feeling so guilty because of it. And Maybe you were just fatigued. Maybe this is you. But what she brought up to me is in birthing, when you're in that transition period, you feel dull, and you don't feel like you want to do anything anymore. You are done. Yeah, when my wife gave birth to our three children, um, and she was in the transition period, I don't remember her feeling dull. I, In fact, I kind of remember there being... <clears throat> it's probably best if I don't discuss these things, but the, the opposite of dull was what I remember in my experience that when in the in the birthing something memories that I have. But then once it gives way to it, you have joy. But then the next day, you feel like a ton of bricks has just hit you, and you feel tired. So, so um, if you're birthing your next level, then you, you what you're describing there, I, I'm taking it as like postpartum um yeah patriots who fight for freedom we don't count the cost if you take the easy way your liberty is lost oh god our help in ages past we need your help once more if we obey your Prince of Peace, he'll keep us out of war. Freedom is not free. Yeah, see, William Tapley just birthed something right there. Well... I want to make this as a place of encouragement to you. No, you weren't just being lazy, all of those different things that you tell yourself while you're in transition because you don't have, seem to have the passion that you used to. You're actually okay. You just birthed something or you're about to birth something. So rejoice in this and be encouraged. I, I, I think the world has gone crazy. I'm... <clears throat> I don't even know what to say anymore. <laughs> what has happened to the world? I, I don't And all of this is done in religious broadcasting on the Internet. <clears throat> Adding insult to in injury. Uh, 
Headline reads, Holy Town, Facebook gets a Christian Farmville. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, maybe I'm birthing something. Anyway, a new... Fa- <laughs> A new Facebook Christian app game launched this month that aims to simulate a real-world evangelical experience (laughs) through social media, says its developer. Holy Town is one of the few Christian Facebook apps available. Since its June launch, it has gained more than 19,000 likes, as well as a positive feedback and hundreds of five-star ratings from its users. I... (laughs) Oh, no. The application description reads, Do you love God? Ever wondered what it would be like to start your own church and bring more people to God? Well, find out in Facebook's first Christian game, Holy Town. Oh, no. This is ridiculous. The game begins by allowing gamers to choose an avatar from among four characters. Currently, one of the four features is working. The others are still being developed. Oh, okay. The basic idea of the game is to create a church by earning coins through preaching. Preaching means typing in biblical words such as Savior, forgiveness, and sacrifice up to five times a day. The more coins you receive, the bigger your church. (laughs) The more congregation members, players have, the more coins they will earn when they preach. I would rather beat my head against a brick wall. You have got to be kidding. By the, by the way, I, I, I enjoy a couple of Zynga games, and uh, I use them from beating my head against a brick wall. When I'm previewing uh, sermons here on, on Fighting for the Faith, oftentimes I'll, I'll kind of have my brain you know, idling on, you know, something like Farmville or Cityville or the new, uh, new app. They have a new game uh, that Zynga put out called Empires and Allies. And uh, the best way I can describe it is it's like a cityville with bombs, and, and you can attack your neighbors. And that feels really good. Anyway, somebody, some of my Facebook friends, I think as a joke, have signed up for Holy Town, and they're sending me uh, you know, you know, gifts from Holy Town. Please, please stop. stop. Don't, oh, I think I've blocked the app. It was unbelievable. This is ridiculous. If you would like to know what it's like to grow a church, well, go out and preach the gospel and start a church. Don't waste your time on Holy Town typing in the words Savior, forgiveness, and sacrifice in order to earn coins. Why why is it that Christians always have to ape the culture? They are always two, three steps behind the culture. And and this is what passes as cutting-edge, relevant stuff. This is not cutting-edge and relevant. It's... It's pathetic. It's lame. Anyway, um, talking about um, you know cutting edge and relevant. Yeah, um, again, it's the summertime, and the number of churches, seeker driven churches. This is the time in their liturgical calendar when it's time for them to preach on movies. And a gentleman by the name of Cole Phillips, who uh, who uh, is part of, he's the uh, teaching pastor at the Connection Church. And and, uh, and I think they're in Kyle, Texas. But uh, here's their latest video uh, announcing their uh, movie sermon, uh, blockbuster movie sermon series here. Hello, and welcome to GodOnFilm.net, presented by the Connection Church. I'm Cole Phillips, a lead pastor. 
And I want to personally invite you to be our guest this Sunday as we get behind the scenes of this summer's biggest blockbuster movies and find out the spiritual truths behind the movies. You know, again, all of these guys, they do this as a means of trying to let the uh, the the so-called seeker know that we care about them, that we really truly care about them. this. See, we we can be hip, we can be relevant, and and, and all that kind of stuff. Which kind of leads to the question: I mean, are, are movies a means of grace? Uh, yeah, over at North Point, out there in Missouri, uh, you know, um, Tommy Sparger. I mean, he's doing a his his summer movie series. You know, th- again, this is all part of the seeker-driven lectionary. I mean, this is, if you're a seeker-driven, purpose-driven pastor, I mean. There's certain things you have to preach on at particular times of the year, and movies are like that's one of them uh, during the summertime. Now, some some of these guys have jumped the gun and they were preaching their their movie sermons early this year. But yeah, again, you know, the question is 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 this a means of grace? Has God promised in His you know to that you know to lead people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins through such movies as Pirates of the Caribbean? Or Jaws, yeah. Tommy Sparger's he he's doing like classics uh, movies this this year. So I mean, Jaws is one of the ones that he's uh, preaching a sermon on. I I can't wait to hear the Jaws sermon. I mean, I just can't wait to get my teeth into that one. Anyway, <clears throat> pun intended. Listen again. Here's more coal. And get to know God in an even deeper way than ever before. I want- so I I'm supposed to get to know God in a deeper way more than ever before via movies rather than the Bible. Doesn't make any sense to me. I invite you personally to be with us this Sunday because our first 50 first-time guests will receive a free Regal movie ticket. I also want to encourage you to register on the site so you can get some more information. And I look forward to seeing you this Sunday. At the movies. (laughs) Yeah, here's the complete with the Connection Church done Star Wars style. You know, if you want to connect people with God, um, God's word, it says that God's word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Not movies. Um, I'm going to go with the thing that has power, not the thing that has, like, no power. And, you know, again, call me lazy, but I just have zero, zero, uh, um, did I mention zero desire to take my entertainment time? You know, those would be the movies I'm watching because I want to watch them. And... And dice and slice them up and and pull out the microscope in search of spiritual themes so that I can draw closer to God. That's not why I watch movies. I I like explosions. I like car chases. I like big wrecks. I like gunfights. Uh, you you understand what I'm saying? And so um, I'm I'm not really watching movies to get spiritual themes out of them unless it's a movie that I'm particularly going to that had that I know has a spiritual theme. You get what I'm saying? Anyway, so yeah, again, I just, I, it doesn't make any sense. Any of this stuff doesn't make any sense to me at all. All right, uh, we are up on our first break, and if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pyro Christian. We'll be right back.
Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Do you have a copy of 30 Days in the Desert to Learn Your Purpose and to Cast the Vision to the Ignorant Masses by S. Furtick QWZ? Uh, well, I don't know the book, sir. Uh, never mind. Never mind. How about 101 Ways to Build a Mega Church and Make Big Bucks? I? Well, some American gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment. I believe his last name rhymes with Shin. Uh, no. Well, we haven't gotten in stock, sir. <sighs> oh, well. Not to worry. Not to worry. Can you help me with the screw tape letters? Ah, yes. C.S. Lewis. No. I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. Sir. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity. It's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh- quite sure? Quite. Hmm. Not worth just looking? Definitely not. <sighs> all right, how about the great divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. Actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. Mm, The Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. (sighs) Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian, and perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity. That's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did. They sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I-, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No. Don't have that funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here. Thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't. No, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, but, it's one o'clock. We're closing for lunch. I, I saw it. I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S. Yes. M-A-Y-E-R. Yes. Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, the 
all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right. I'll remove it. Any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists. The Methodists. The Methodists. The Methodists. Oh, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans. No Presbyterians. No Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What, what, what? what? Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two... Huh? <laughs> yes, we got it. I see it somewhere. Yes, <laughs> I found it here. Got it. Yes, here we are. Martin Chemnitz's two natures in Christ. There's your book. Now buy it. I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit. I, I don't have any money. I'll take a check. I, I don't have a checkbook. I got a blank one. I, I don't have a bank account. Right. I'll buy it for you. There we are. There's change. There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way home. There's wait, your wait, wait, wait. What, 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 what? I can't read. You can't read. Right? Sit down, sit down, sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter 1. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Warning, um, there's some crazy things going on out there. It, it, exposure to this program could hurt your brain. I'm, I'm just saying. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. 
When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of fighting for the faith in Pirate Christian Radio. We still have about 135 uh, more crew members that we need to ensure that we'll be able to make our budget month after month after month after month, which is kind of important. So if you haven't already joined our crew, visit our website and join. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And thank you for your support, especially during the financially lean summer months. Okay, moving along here. I'm not going to play any music for this because we already played our um, our news music. But uh, I uh, failed to report on this little story here uh, from the Christian Post. This was published on June 16th. I can't believe I missed this. But it says, Southern Baptists passes doctrine that hell is eternal conscious punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would, I think this would be uh, deemed the Rob Bell resolution. Uh, rejecting Rob Bell's view on hell, the Southern Baptists affirmed the historical biblical teaching on hell as eternal conscious punishment in a resolution that was passed on the last day of the denomination's annual meeting. Good for them. Uh, <clears throat> those of you who are listening in the LCMS, I think it's uh, important that we do something similar. I hope that we do. Anyway, the resolution entitled The Reality of Hell specifically mentions uh, Rob Bell's controversial book, Love Wins. The book released in March criticizes the belief that a few Christians will spend eternity in heaven while everyone else is in eternity and eternally punished in hell. Quote, Rob Bell in his 2011 book, Love Wins, has called into question the church's historical teaching on the doctrine of eternal punishment of the unregenerate, reads the resolution, which was introduced and passed Wednesday at the Southern Baptist Convention annual convention in Phoenix, Arizona. The messengers to the SBZ meeting voted to hereby affirm our belief in the biblical teaching on eternal conscious punishment of the unregenerate in hell. The three-paragraph resolution also urged Southern Baptist to hold fast to the teachings on the reality of hell and salvation found in Christ alone. Quote, resolved that out of our love for the lost and our deep desire that they will not suffer eternally in hell, we implore Southern Baptists to proclaim faithfully the depth and gravity of sin against a holy God, the reality of hell, and the salvation of sinners by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, read the statement. David Platt, pastor of the church at Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama, and author of the best-selling book Radical, also referenced Rob Bell's view on hell in a sermon delivered following the morning's vote on several resolutions. While Bell acknowledges in his book that hell is a literal reality, he suggests that hell is not forever and love in the end wins. Bell says the Greek word ion, which is translated to mean eternal, could also mean period of time. In his conventional sermon, Platt took issue with Bell's claim that hell may not be forever. Is hell real? Is hell forever? Did God really say sinners would perish in eternal torment forever and ever? The pastor asks. He cautioned readers of Rob Bell's book to listen carefully and to be very cautious when anyone says, Did God really say this? Those are the words of the devil, by the way. Good point, Pastor Platt. Several prominent evangelical Christian scholars, including Southern Baptist Theological Seminary President President Albert Muller, have strongly denounced Bell's teaching on hell as unbiblical. They have also accused Bell with being a universalist, a charge the author has verbally denied. Yet, at the same time, 
that's exactly what it, the end of his theology is. Okay, talking about uh, Albert Muller, uh, another friend of mine on Facebook sent me a link uh, to a, a video that I'm surprised I haven't uh, already played here on this program. Uh, and uh, it's audio of uh, R.C. Sproul and Albert Muller discussing the seeker-sensitive movement. And it's it's brilliant. So that that's all the introduction you're going to get. Here is R.C. Sproul. I think he well actually he's not asking the question. He's going to field the question first, and then Albert Muller is going to chime in. Here we go. What are your thoughts about the seeker-sensitive movement, as it is called? What, what was that? The seeker-sensitive movement. Your thoughts? Oh my. Oh, it's uh, it's a very, very bad thing. Very bad. Because it rests on a fundamental error. The assumption is that unbelievers outside the church are desperately seeking for God, number one. The second fundamental error is that the purpose of corporate worship on Sunday morning is to reach the lost. Now, why are those the two fundamental errors? The first one is that the Bible makes it absolutely clear that in our natural condition, in our fallen state, no one seeks after God. The only people who seek after God are those who have been already born again. Seeking after God begins with regeneration. We are the seekers. Now, Aquinas had to answer this question in his day when people said, you know, it sure seems to me that my next-door neighbor is searching after Christ, but he's not a believer, and yet the Bible says nobody searches. You know, what's with that? And Aquinas said, here, you see people all around you that are searching for peace of mind, for happiness, for relief from guilt, for meaning and significance to their lives, and you watch them searching desperately for these things, and you say, well, the only thing that can give them that is Christ. And so you assume then that they're searching for that which only God can give them, the benefits of God. They therefore must be seeking after God. Christ says, no. He said, the problem with fallen man is that we seek for the benefits that only God can give us, while at the same time, we're fleeing as fast and as hard as we can from him. So the seeker out there is not seeking for God. He's seeking for a hiding place from God. So get that straight. Second of all, worship is to be the corporate gathering together of the people of God for worship. Okay? Now, you always, you always assume that there's going to be some tears along with the wheat, and there's going to be unbelievers present in the worship, and you've got to be sensitive to that, as Paul indicates to the Corinthians. So that you have to, at some point, uh, address the lost in your sermon. But fundamentally, what's going on on Sunday morning are the believers gathering on the Lord's Day to attend the study of the uh, sit at the feet of the apostles, to gather for prayer, for worship, adoration, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And what we should be most concerned about in our worship is what is it that pleases God, right. not what, what is it that pleases the unbeliever. Right. 
This is, this is one of the great tragedies of our day, I think. And it's going to really cost the church, and not, it's not going to take a long time. It already has cost the church. I think that's brilliant, and I agree with every word of it, and that's the very heart of it. I, I think the language here is a bit dated now. In other words, I don't hear much about the seeker-sensitive church as explicitly as we heard that methodology referred to in the past, but the logic's still there. And, and here's what I found it, just in terms of observing this, and R.C. got to the deep level. Let me get to the level you're likely to see. Uh, here's the logic. It's a pretty seductive logic, which is if you scratch people where they now itch, they'll be more open to hearing the gospel. And uh, the logic is that if you, if you help them to know how to have a better bank account and, and more obedient children and, and uh, greener grass and, you know, well-manicured lawn and whatever else they're trying to help them with, and, uh, you know, you do a sermon series on this and a sermon series on that, you'll earn their trust because you actually met their needs. This is explicit in the methodology. So they'll then trust you when you talk to them about the gospel. Two problems with that. Number one, it doesn't work. And, and number two, in a lot of these places, they never even get to talking about the gospel. You know, you just come back later, they're still on green grass. You know, and uh, now instead of dealing with preschoolers, it's dealing with teenagers. But it's just, in, in other words, we actually never, never get to it. And uh, I'll tell you, just look phenomenologically at this. Look at how many big churches were built on this methodology and their back door was larger than their front door. That's right. And uh, you just don't have a church left. It's also a strategy of unbelief. Mm-hmm. In this regard, we're still looking for Joseph's pants. Now, what do I mean by that? In the last sermon that Martin Luther ever preached two days before he fell ill and died, he preached on the gospel, and he preached on his concern that despite of the awakening of the Reformation and the recovering of the light of the gospel, which was now being preached and was available to the people, the people were still uh, addicted to relics. And rather than read the scriptures, they would go to Trier, where they had in their uh, relics uh, uh, the pants of Joseph or a vial of milk from the breast of Mary. And what he was saying is is that what people were looking for was power. And they believed that there was power in the pants of Joseph. Now, we don't go around looking for the pants of Joseph now. Now the power is in the program. Whereas what Luther says, then what we've been hearing And what we just heard from your message is that the power of the Holy Ghost is mediated in and through the Word. When are we going to believe that? That's when I say it's a strategy of unbelief. The minister wants to grow his church. The minister wants to see success. And so he's looking for all these programs, all these techniques to get people to come in. But he never goes over the bridge and gets to the Word. If you want a power... In your church, be an expository preacher. Preach the Word. Amen. That's where the Spirit is. Isn't, isn't that God's strategy? Yes. And if we believe God's strategy, we're going to preach the Amen. Word. Amen. In season. And I'm preaching now. It works. <laughs> yeah.
again, I, I cannot believe I haven't passed that along, but uh, that kind of gets to the nub of it. You know, where's the power? The power is in the Word of God. It's not in movies. It's not in your program. It's not in in your outreach. It's not in, in helping fat people become skinny vis-a-vis the uh, Daniel plan. That's not where the power is. The power is in the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. And the, the other thing is, is that look, read the book of Acts. You're going to be hard-pressed, hard-pressed to find an example of where the Apostle Paul or any of the apostles come in and and try to entertain people and show them they care before they preach the gospel. That just never happens. Anyway, I, I thought that was a, the right thing to play on the heels of um, what we heard from another purpose-driven pastor regarding movies, same old stuff from this time of the year. Anyway, uh, from the, uh, uh, the moving along, the um, White Horse Inn blog has a, a series of... Uh, blog post that they've been doing, uh, posted by Eric Landry, entitled Basic Apologetics. And I think this is interesting. And uh, the reason I think it's interesting is because uh, they they take a biblical, you know, kind of an apologetic question, and then they, they give a couple of different answers. And uh, th- this was interesting. Uh, How can I know that the Bible is true is the uh, name of the... Uh, of the that's the question that we're going to be doing here, and we the answers uh, the the two answers are going to be given. One is from uh, the Reverend William Swirla, uh, LCMS pastor, who uh, you know he's a co-host of the God Whispers that airs here on Pirate Christian Radio, and um, a gentleman I'm not familiar with uh, from the PCA, the kind of a more reformed answer is given from Jason Stellman, and and it just the two answers are. When you read them side by side, the way they are laid out, it, it kind of shows a difference in uh, the uh, the Lutheran way of doing apologetics as opposed to the Reformed way. But anyway, so how can I know that the Bible is true? That's the question. Pastor Swirla writes, he says, There is sufficient evidence from the field of archaeology to show that the Bible is historically quite accurate. Even skeptical archaeologists have learned to take the biblical narrative at face value. Of course, this doesn't prove the Bible to be true, only accurate in historical details. But that's a good place to begin. The New Testament documents are reliable. First source, historical documents written by eyewitnesses to a unique event uh, the uh, in history, the uh, incarnation of the Son of God culminating in his death and resurrection. The manuscript evidence gives us a reliable text, far more reliable than any other text from antiquity. The Gospels are a form of historical narrative. Luke mentions the fact that he did his historical research prior to writing his account. The claim of all of these writers is that Jesus died on a cross and rose bodily from the dead three days later. Paul mentions that Jesus was seen risen from the dead by more than 500 eyewitnesses, in addition to the apostles, many of whom went to their death, insisting they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. These eyewitnesses had everything to lose and nothing to gain for claiming Jesus was risen. In fact, the religious and political authorities had a vested interest in the contrary, so their testimony was given in view of hostile cross-examination. This same dead, risen Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection three times before it happened. As baseball pitcher Dizzy Dean once said, It ain't bragging, and if you can do it, Jesus did it. For that reason, we did. We need to take seriously what Jesus says. He says that the Old Testament scriptures speak of him and teach the way of eternal life. He says that the scriptures teach his death and resurrection and of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. He promised that his apostles would receive the Holy Spirit, who would bring 
uh, to mind all that he had taught and would guide them into all truth. The Apostle Paul writes the Old Testament scriptures are the very breath of God. And Peter similarly writes that the prophets spoke not on their own initiative, but as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The linchpin for the veracity of the scriptures is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not only the central teaching, it's also the foundation to the truth claims of of the scriptures. If Christ is not raised, then everything that is written in the Bible is suspect. But Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, who died and rose from the dead, points us to the scriptures which he claims reliably speak concerning himself. So that's the answer to the question, how can I know that the Bible is true? The answer It all rests on Jesus Christ and his death and bodily resurrection from the grave. Notice that it's very incarnational. I hate to even use that word, but it hinges on the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, for knowing that the Bible's true. And then ultimately everything hangs on Jesus using this way of doing apologetics. Now, from a different way of doing apologetics, from the Reformed camp, Uh, From the PCA, uh, Jason Stellman writes, he says, The Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 1.4, states that the authority of Scripture does not depend on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God. In both the Old and New Testaments, the Bible declares itself to be the very Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true. And righteous altogether, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But accepting Scripture's self-testimony is not simply random circular reasoning. It's not something we do in spite of manifold evidence to the contrary, like believing that the Book of Mormon is true because we get a burning in our bosom when we read it. Rather, the Bible's own internal evidence, such as the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of only uh, of the only way of man's salvation, the, ma- the many other incomparable excellencies, the entire perfection thereof bears witness to its truthfulness and authority. But as with the existence of God, believing the Bible's message is not something we can do without the work of the Holy Spirit within us. We are not passive, neutral observers who weigh the evidence in some objective, disinterested way. Rather, we are by nature inclined to evil and hostile to the divine things. That's why all rational arguments in the world will not convince us to bow before our Creator and submit to its message. Only the power of the Spirit working through the Word can accomplish that. Interesting, interesting, interesting. It makes me wonder if uh, uh, Jason Stellman is a Vantilian uh, presuppositionalist when it comes to uh, his apologetic style. Um, which one do I consider to be more uh, convincing? I, well, <clears throat> the Lutheran guy, of course. Uh, but there's a reason. Notice that uh, in answering the question, how can I know the Bible is true? Jason Stellman basically comes to the conclusion you really can't know unless the Holy Spirit gives it to you to know. Uh, Pastor Swirla points you to a crucified and risen Savior. And, um, and you know, Stellman you know, basically talks about the heaviness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the excellencies of it, all of which are in, it kind of put me into something that's a little bit, not a little bit, but a lot uh, subjective, um, uh, and you know, I'm. Uh, it, it it sounds kind of like that Quran argument. You know, I know the Quran is 
true, says the, uh, the the Muslim, because nothing more beautiful has ever been written. You know, take would take one of it, one of its uh, you know uh, pieces and and compare it to any other uh, any other religious book, and you'll see that. The, the the Quran is is written more beautifully and more excellently and more sublimely than than any other religious book. That's I, I don't consider that much of an argument. And what I find with uh, Pastor Swirla's approach, which is the approach that I that I take, um, you know, in in the way I was trained to do apologetics, also is is that point people to Jesus. Um, that's the thing. The apostles were obsessed with preaching Christ and him crucified and risen for our sins and for our salvation. And he claimed to be the God of the Jews in human flesh, proved it by raising himself from the dead. Uh, that, that's something I can sink my teeth into. That's something I can kind of hang on to. That's something I can hang my hat on. Uh, this other thing about the, the heaviness of the matter and the sublimity and the uh, uh, truth, you know, all that. That doesn't help me much. Anyway, anyway, so a fascinating series of um, of uh, blog posts over at the at the White Horse Inn blog. I, I I think it highlights two completely different approaches to apologetics. And by the way, uh, Michael Horton of the White Horse Inn, uh, he's not a Vantilian presuppositionalist in his uh, approach to uh, apologetics. In fact, he holds the J. Gresham Machen Chair of Apologetics out there at Westminster Theological Seminary in. Uh, uh, in Escondido, California. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think Michael Horton himself would probably gravitate much closer. And in fact, I think he would almost argue verbatim the way that uh, Swirla does here. So, anyway, just uh, worth passing along if you want to kind of t- see how different apologetic approaches play out in answering some of these questions. Uh, and you can find that at whitehorseinn.org. And when you get there, click on the blog link. And uh, and and take a look at some of the the, the posts that they have up there. I I I, I, I might do one more, uh, you know, tomorrow, but we'll we'll see how this goes. Anyway, um, we're up on our second break. When we come back, I've got a sermon that I'm going to be reviewing uh, from a church that's local to my area. It's uh, Northview Church in Carmel, Indiana, and uh, they've been doing a series of uh, a sermon series entitled "We Connect," and it's not W E. It's W-I-I, like the, you know, the gaming platform, we, uh, should tell you something of, you know, what kind of church we're going to be listening to. And uh, I'm going to try something a little bit different today in my sermon review, but it'll still pretty much be my normal sermon review. So uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We're going to be right back. Being good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough! Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. 
Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Uh, today's sermon comes to us via Northview Church in Carmel, Indiana. This is the first sermon we've ever reviewed from this church. They are a huge, and I, I mean huge, seeker-driven church up on a hill. They have baseball fields, a cross-country course, uh, a disc golf course, all on their property I mean, it's, it's just ginormous. It's like Saddleback, Indiana. That's the best way I can describe it. Today's sermon, by the way, is entitled, We Connect Family Baggage. Yeah, Family Baggage. And it's uh, preached by uh, one of the teaching pastors there. His name is Stan Kilbrew. Mm. Now, before we get into the sermon... Kill the music here. Hang on a second here. There. Okay. Um, before I get into the sermon, I, I Cindy, a, a listener by the name of Cindy, uh, she uh, writes on my Facebook wall. Chris, 
Could you please do a few sermon reviews where you focus on specifically using the creeds, such as the Apostles and the Nicene Creed? You mentioned that most error can be spotted when comparing the sermon with the creeds. Could you demonstrate that for us uh, on a program or two? The answer is yes. And uh, Cindy, in fact, let's let's do that today. And uh, in fact, what we're going to do, okay, um, yeah, um, I'm not going to tell you what Stan's going to say, but I what we're going to do... Right now is that if you have a copy of your Lutheran hymnal, <laughs> you can open up to uh, the, find the Nicene Creed. Those of you who are sans uh, Lutheran hymnals, uh, you can find it on the Internet. Um, let's, let's take a look at the Nicene Creed. What, I, what I'm talking about here, one of the points I made uh, recently on the program, I think I made this with Phil Lehman, is, is that uh, the creeds, uh, you know, by putting the creed before the sermon, you can sit there and go, "Oh wait, did, did I really hear what the Christian faith is and what and what it believes, teaches, and confesses?" And uh, and so, let me read for you the Nicene Creed here, and I want you to listen to this creed and get it into your head so that you can see whether or not this is the faith that is being proclaimed and taught in Stan Kilbrew's sermon. Because I can tell you right now, uh, I'll reveal this fact, Stan Kilbrew is going to syncretize or attempt to syncretize Christianity with um, psychology. Yeah, and as a result of it, some stuff gets messed up. Badly, in fact. Uh, so here's what the Nicene Creed says, which, by the way, uh, also in, in ancient times, in the during the time of the patristics, during the time of the church fathers, uh, this was referred to as the rule of faith, and this goes all the way back. This goes way, 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 way back. It's a summary of, of what Christianity believes, teaches, and confesses. I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. Now, pay close attention to this part of the Nicene Creed, because Stan, well, let's just say that uh, this doesn't seem to come up. Anyway, and he was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and he ascended into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and is glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, Cindy, since you've asked to do this, uh, you've you've asked for me to do this. I I will re be referring back to the Nicene Creed uh, during our sermon review. So, uh, yeah, with that, uh, let's dive into the sermon review itself. Here is Stan Kilbrew from Northview Church, Carmel, Indiana. Uh, the sermon series we connect like the you know the, the Nintendo Wii co uh, console and the name of the sermon family baggage here we go baggage for as long as we've had stuff we found ways to bring it along baggage started off big but it got smaller portable now one person can carry more than ever important stuff like clothes 
toiletries, fancy little dogs, you know, necessities. But what's amazing is how much stuff we drag around that we don't need and don't like. Things that trip us up, wear us out, and box us in. Stuff like anger. What is wrong with you? Addiction. Overeating. And overspending. It was amazing. They had such great sales. I couldn't believe it. We carry around past relationships. I don't know what I ever saw in you. I didn't even dress well. Gosh. Worry. Unforgiveness. And selfishness. I think that's a great idea, don't you? I love it. It makes us ask questions like... Why did I do that? Or how did I get here? And what is wrong with me? Because this stuff is heavy. It's bulky. Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It makes everything in life harder, especially relationships. You might not know where it came from or how you got it, but there's only one way to deal with baggage. Throw it down. Drop it. Just let go. Sounds easy, but it's not. You carry something long enough, it feels like a part of you. You walk away, but a minute later, it's back in your hand. Baggage is tricky like that. You gotta keep dropping, keep throwing, keep letting go, so you can take hold of something better. Okay, now, uh, already, let's come back to the Nicene Creed here. Um... Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man? Um, yeah, um, you'll notice here that the Nicene Creed also talks about the forgiveness of sins. Um, um, do, do any biblical authors uh, talk about sin as baggage that we just need to let go and throw down? Or does it talk about our sins that Christ died for? Now, keep in mind, the Nicene Creed is a summary of what the Bible teaches. And it's an accurate and correct summary. Let's continue. God's best for your life. And for that, you're going to need both hands. We run fastest, love fullest, and live lightest when we let go. So the big the big goal is to get to where we live the best life we can possibly live here and now. Is that what Christianity really offers? Of the baggage. Yeah. Yeah, you can clap for that. Why? Baggage. Heavy. Yeah, that that would be a prop. I've got a secret I want to share with you today. I love to travel. That's not my secret. The secret is I'm I'm not a very I'm not very good at packing for that travel. I feel like I need to turn in my man card just to admit that to you. But it's true. I'm not very good at packing. My wife is the true genius in our house in that department. We went on a trip uh, over spring break. We went out to Washington, D.C., and uh, here's how it worked in, in our house. She spent, my wife spent, the f- oh, probably two weeks before we left, 
just getting ready for the trip, thinking through what we were going to need, packing exactly what we needed, not just for her, but for our five kids as well. She thought through the trip, and uh, she remembered that, or she knew that we were going to have access to a washer and dryer about halfway through the week, and so she packed light. She got three clothes or three outfits, I think, for each of the kids, maybe that many or a few more for herself. And she even thought through what to pack so that we would just have to throw it all into the laundry together. We didn't have to sort the clothes. And so when I got home the night before the trip, there was a nice, neat pile of baggage waiting for me by the front door. It's my job to load that up into the minivan before we leave. The problem is I couldn't do it yet because at that point you would have found me upstairs in our bedroom hastily throwing together my own baggage. Um, I was never a Boy Scout, but I completely bought into their motto, always be prepared. And so here's my problem with packing. I'm standing there in front of the bed and I'm thinking through everything that could possibly happen this week. It might rain, so I'm going to need a raincoat. Well, it might get chilly at night, so I better grab a sweatshirt. Well, I might spill something on that sweatshirt, so I better grab two. And before you know it, I've got this big old pile of clothes and stuff like flashlights. I didn't need flashlights. And so I grab this big pile of stuff, and I'm stumbling down the staircase, and I come to the front door and drop this pile of baggage next to the nice, neat pile. And it's only in that moment that I... Now, I I just kind of point this out. Um, Notice that the Nicene Creed... um, in summarizing the Christian faith, points to all the things that God, the Holy Trinity, has done for us: God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, and it, all of the all of the action there in the creed is done by God. Who who's Stan talking about? Recognize what everybody else in my family already knows: that my pile for just me is almost as big as the pile for the six other people in our house. That's a problem. But the real problem comes in at the end of the trip when everybody else is able to take their little bag, nice, neat bag of luggage, and they bring it upstairs and just kind of dump it out into the laundry bin. Not me. I have to unpack what I packed on the front end. I mean, some of those clothes are still nice and neat and folded in the bag. I didn't touch them all week long. Well, I did touch them. Not in the bag, really outside the bag, as I was loading and unloading and repacking that silly van probably at least three times. Unnecessarily, I had to handle all of that extra heavy baggage. I wonder how many of us do that same exact thing with our lives. We're carrying around baggage from our past. We're in this series on the family. Today we're talking about family baggage. We're going to zero in on that baggage that comes to us from our family of origin. I want to help you think through what this might possibly be for you. We have some folks who have been very honest here at Northview and shared some of their baggage. So I'm going to invite you right now to watch the screens. Listen to this segment. That we call- Now, as you're listening to this, let me ask, is this the equivalent to a confession of sins? Listen in call Ask Northview. Because it was business, business, business. Uh, They're not married anymore. Um, They both pursued different relationships, or my father did. So that's non-existence. It was marked with uh, really poor communication, um, language barrier. Um, My dad was, excuse me, an American GI, married my mom in the Vietnam War. Um, clash of cultures, clash of personalities, 
just clash. My dad was unfaithful to my mom, um, so I saw a lot of fighting. Um, my dad would would leave for a while, and um, my mom was just very uh, emotionally unstable, and I kind of became her stability at a very young age. They sort of like kind of lived a little bit like independent lives, I guess, in the same house. I mean, it wasn't that they, you know, it wasn't a terrible story, but they just sort of did their own thing. And my mother did her card clubs. My dad did his poker nights. Uh, you know, they just didn't do quite as much together. Conflict in my family was handled with my dad had the last say. Like, my mom really didn't argue a lot with him. And if she did, he would get angry and because he was the head of the household. No one could really have a differing opinion from him. Um, he wasn't cruel, but it was you weren't allowed to speak your mind. I would say the conflict wasn't handled very well. I'd say uh, in arguments, uh, I, I didn't see him ever work it out. Between my mom and dad, my mom, again, she avoided conflict at all costs. So there typically wasn't any. The few times there was, um, well, then my dad just wouldn't come around. Watching how my father modeled it um, back then and the way he is today, he would, uh, he would get very angry. And, and I know that um, I have come by that honestly, as they say, but it's been a big struggle in our own marriage is how I handle that with the, the outbursts of anger and those types of things. So that's kind of how conflict was managed in our lives. That was how it was modeled for me, at least. I don't think it was handled that well. I, I think things were swept under the rug. Uh, I think if emotions were shared, they were shared, and then time went by and things were not, were not dealt with, so they were just stored up. Conflict in my family was handled with a lot of volume and a lot of energy and a lot of is it me or I mean, do you feel like you're in a group therapy session? I, I don't feel like I'm listening to a sermon. A lot of emotion. Uh, things tended to uh, be very quiet and steady, kind of like that rumbling volcano, and then uh, uh, come out very explosively. Yeah, thanks, guys, for your honesty. Just so we're clear right up front, I want to tell you where we're heading with this message. I crafted... Uh, hopefully, hopefully you're heading to the cross. Hopefully you're heading to Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised, and, you know, for our justification, for the forgiveness of our sins. A bit of a thesis statement. I just wanted to make sure I knew exactly where we were heading with this. I want to share that with you. I'm calling this the baggage claim. It's a really bad pun. I actually sat in my office for about 10 minutes, staring at my computer screen, deciding, am I going to go with that? You see where I landed. It's cheesy, but I think it works. Here's our baggage claim today. Let's recognize that we were shaped in some profound ways by that incubator we grew up in. Hmm. Hang on. We got to do a little biblical work here. Um... Yeah, if you have your Bible, uh, turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, this is a, a passage that describes the predicament that every human being finds himself or herself in. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in, our, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So um, this passage um, here describes our predicament, that we are, all of us by nature, dead in trespasses and sins and children of God's wrath. But here's the gospel. Listen to this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the Christian message is that every human being has a problem, and that problem goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Every human being from Adam and Eve forward is born according to the course of nature, is born dead and dead in trespasses and sins, at war with God, and an object of God's wrath. That's the problem. So as here we're listening to Stan Kilbrew. Um, I feel like I'm in a group therapy session complete with the therapist um, speaking in those kind of soothing, dulcet tones that make me want to go and find a wall and beat my head against it. But I'll go with that because that makes me feel better and maybe I need to get that out. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, and by the way... um. The other thing that's interesting is that uh, we are nine minutes and 50 seconds into the sermon. And uh, let let me, uh, God's word has not made an appearance yet. I mean, like not even close. And uh, and so let let me just do a little bit of, uh, a little bit of work here. Um, uh, There we go. Okay. Uh, So we are 21, we are 21% of the way through this message. Yeah, no word of God yet. None, uh, no, no appearance whatsoever of the word of God. Let's continue. Let's also recognize that there's no baggage that's too heavy for our Lord to lift. Let's recognize that those... No, uh, too heavy for our Lord to lift? So Jesus is the ultimate baggage bench presser? Uh, so What? Those first 17, 18, 19, maybe for some of us more years that we spent with our family of origin, it did shape us in some profound ways, some good ways and some bad ways. There are quite potentially are some hurts and habits and hangups. Yeah, see, here's the deal. Even if I was raised by angels, which I wasn't, uh, um, not saying anything bad against my my parents here. Uh, it's just that they were sinners just like me. Um, even if I were raised by angels, I, I still have a sinful nature. And as a result of it, I sin against God and I transgress his law. 
you keep talking about this problem as baggage, you know, that's something I'm carrying around, some kind of psychological hurt or something like that. That's not the way the Bible discusses our problem at all. And I, and in fact, I feel like you're trying to syncretize psychology with Christianity and the two don't go together. Maybe even some patterns of repetitive sin that are in our lives today that began as a pattern back then. Let's just be honest. But at the same time, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have hope. We have hope that Jesus is able to redeem, even looking backwards. What does that mean, that Jesus is able to redeem? I thought that Jesus did redeem us already by his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. Able to redeem? He's able to lift your baggage? He's a weird way of talking about Jesus. Redeem our past. Gives us hope. Redeem our past. Um, what about redeem me? Redeem kind of, it's slavery language. It's purchasing uh, somebody on the slave block. Jesus purchased my baggage? My past? I thought he purchased me with his blood. For a better future. As we approach baggage today, I'm thinking of three questions that we need to address. There is a what question. There's a why question. And there's a how question. We're going to look at it in that order. Let's start first with the what question. The what question is, what does my baggage look like? Well, you would say, Stan, it's black. It's got a handle. No, 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 I'm not talking about that baggage. I'm talking about from my past. And I would invite you to do some self-introspection. What does your baggage from my past? I mean, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, um, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Yeah, the, the daily nature of the Lord's Prayer and the daily petition that God would forgive us our trespasses. Sin is a transgressing of God's law. It's a breaking of God's law. It's doing something that God has told you not to do or not doing something that God has told you to do. And this occurs in thought, in word, and in deed by what we do, by what we don't do. And these sins are damnable. And they need to be atoned for, and God's wrath propitiated for us to be able to stand before a holy and just God. Um, I'm not hearing anything that remotely sounds like that at all in this sermon. I Baggage look like. What are you carrying around that has become oh so heavy? Now, there are several different kinds of baggage as we examine this question of what. By the way, I would encourage you to think of this question as the most important question we're going to deal with today. What is my baggage? That's a simple question, but don't make the mistake of treating it as a simplistic question. It actually requires a fair amount of work to uncover some of those stones in your life. Peek underneath them. There's uncover stones in my life? What on earth are we talking about? Several different kinds of baggage, and I would, in my life anyway, categorize them like this. There is some baggage from my family, from my past, that I am aware of. 
Somebody has lovingly pointed it out to me at some point in my life a while back, or maybe even I discovered it. I might have even recognized some of that stuff as a... So we're going on a voyage of self-discovery. We're going to be turning over stones in our life to to look for those things that that in our past, you know, that uh, may help us understand the the baggage that we're... What? Again, this is a, this. Uh, these categories are completely foreign to Scripture. I have no idea what these things are that he's talking about. But again, I feel like I'm doing group therapy here. And my question is: Is he licensed as a group therapist? If so, maybe he needs to go do that and get out from behind the pulpit because this is not what a pastor is supposed to be doing during a sermon in church. The child. This isn't right. Something about this doesn't just. It just doesn't seem quite right. I'm aware, and I've been working on it. That's really not the baggage we're talking about today. Good for you. If you've got some of that that you've claimed and, and you're working on, that, that's good. What we're going to talk about today is the baggage that we are maybe not aware of, we haven't thought of, or maybe that which we've just very recently become aware of, and we need to take some action steps toward letting that baggage go. We need to take action steps to let that baggage go. Now, I come back to the Nicene Creed here. Again, and and in one Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation. By the way, that's a distributive. You can distribute this. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried the third day. He rose again from this, uh, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Uh, you get what I'm saying here is, is that this is... Uh, you know, this is what the Nicene Creed teaches as a summary of the Christian faith. But what we're hearing from this guy doesn't sound anything at all like Christianity. I want to tell you about my last week. Um, they say that when you work on a message, oftentimes a message works on you. And that has, in fact, been happening to me this last week. As I've been studying this topic and thinking about it, there's been some kind of light bulbs go off in my brain. Last Sunday, um, many of you, I know, were here this past weekend. We've been preaching through this series. Steve preached last weekend uh, on parenting. And I sat right over there during the 11 o'clock hour, took copious notes because we have five kids, and I'm always looking for some good advice on parenting. Good message on parenting. Bad day to be a parent, quite honestly. I don't want to say too much. I'm choosing my words here very carefully. But we, we have five good kids. They're good kids. They were not being good that day. You know what I'm saying? It was a rough day. I don't want to over, I I can't overstate it. It it was a rough day. We found ourselves that night back in the minivan driving back to the church. There was a life group leader appreciation banquet that night. My wife and I had been looking forward to coming to it. And, uh, you know, we were excited to come and be here. And we were walking into the door and my wife turned and looked at me and said, I can't do it. And she turned around and walked back across the lobby, and I followed her. We ended up finding this um, bench outside on our property, and we sat there for about an hour just talking through the day. She shared with me that saying, I, I can't go in there and, and just, you know, put a smile on my face and uh, act like everything's okay because it's not. This has been a very difficult day. 
She was right. Well, we talked for an hour. We ended up coming back into the event, caught the end of it. It was a great event. Went home that night and had a family meeting, came up with some action steps. It ended well. But the next day, I was telling this story to a friend of mine who knows me fairly well. And I shared with him that there was this conflict happening inside of my heart for the first 15 minutes of that conversation. Here's the thing. I decided in my head a long time ago that there is kind of a pecking order in my life for my attention, for my loyalty. My God is first. I would put my, my family second. Even in that, I would divide that. I would put my, my wife above my children. And then after my family, I would place my ministry and what I do for God. That's the pecking order in my life. I've put some time and some you know, intention, intentional thought into that, studying scripture to come up with that list. And in that moment, I knew that my, my responsibility in this moment is to be a husband, to listen. But I shared with my friend, all I could think of was I need to get back in there. I shouldn't be out here sitting on this bench. I'm a pastor at this church. I should be in there putting a smile on my face, acting as if everything's okay. But you see, it wasn't. It wasn't okay. My friend, I believe, has a spiritual gift of wisdom, and he was insightful. He pointed out to me, he knows a bit of my past. He said, Stan, is it possible that, because I shared with him, I said, I feel this burden all the time. Oftentimes at church, I feel like it's my responsibility to be the thermostat for the room. I have to kind of set the tone or the mood, the temperature for the rest of the the room. I feel this burden, and if I'm not there, then I feel guilty. He said, is it possible that this goes back to your childhood? He knows a bit of my story. He knows that my mother, well, she was diagnosed with cancer when I was in fifth grade. And she ultimately passed away from that horrible disease my senior year of high school. And for those seven years in between, he knows because I've told him that I was the oldest of the four kids and I felt the burden to take care of them and their feelings, their hurts, their habits, their hangups. Is it possible that I'm walking some of that into my adult life today? I feel that burden. So apparently, you know, the problem, the reason why he does bad things is because of, well, you know, environmental issues from his childhood. Again, we're, this is group therapy. And it was as if light bulbs went off and that conversation led to another conversation, ultimately led to a conversation with my wife that is very helpful. And as I've been thinking through this, I actually had this memory this last week. I remember sitting in my mother's funeral my senior year of high school. And it was in a church building. And I was staring at the casket. And the preacher read a letter that my mother had written years before. I don't think she even intended for this letter to be shared. Um, It was kind of her private grief. But she was writing to each of her kids. I'm the oldest of the four. And her words to me that were read aloud that day, almost from the grave, were, Stan, be brave. Be strong. And I remember sitting there and feeling all the eyes of these people turn and look at me. And the self-talk in my brain at that point, all I was saying over and over and over to myself was, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. And then I over-spiritualized it. (laughs) Then I uh, made it some kind of a ministry to be brave. And uh, because mom, you know, she's in heaven now. This should be a thing of joy, not a thing of sorrow. And so I didn't cry. How broken is that? 
Is it possible that that's still affecting me today? I believe it is. And just this past week, as I'm turning over that rock and I'm looking underneath and I'm doing some self-exploration, I'm realizing some things and I'm discovering that's some baggage that I, it's time, it's time for me to deal with that. How about you? What family baggage are you still dragging around? What have you done with Jesus? Where is he? Is there a cross in your church? I mean, you are familiar with the idea of Jesus dying for our sins. Some of you, um, recently somebody has told you that that controlled substance, you are hitting that pretty heavy. And uh, if you were honest and you were to admit to yourself, you are finding it cunning, baffling, powerful. It has a control over your life. And then you do some kind of discovery and you're thinking through your brain, I think my dad had some issues with that as well. You know, Grandma, she kept a bottle underneath the sink. She called it her medicine. Is it possible that that's family baggage? I believe it is quite possible that that is family baggage. Some of you, maybe recently somebody's pointed out to you that um, you can't keep a secret to save your life. Well, let's call that what it is. The scriptures talk about that. They call it gossip. It's a sin. You think about that and you think backwards through your family of origin and you remember that uh, your mom did some of this. She called it prayer requests. The phone would ring, it would come in. And then very quickly, that prayer request would go right back out. You know what I'm talking about? Is it possible that that is baggage? Yeah, I think it could be. Maybe your issue is anger. I don't know. But the most important step is to claim it. My issue is that I'm a sinner by nature. And as a result of it, I commit sins. Step one, the first question we're asking is, what does my baggage look like? Here's the thing. I'm going to invite you to reach up right now in the seat back in front of you and pull out one of these baggage tickets, these baggage tags that we have there. And I'm going to invite you right now to go ahead and write on it. What is your baggage? Go ahead and claim it. Write it down. Maybe you can't think of it right now. It's going to take you a few minutes. Uh, You just feel free through the rest of the message. If you have that kind of inspiration moment, go ahead and take a moment and write it down, claim it. Now, let me tell you, we're not going to do anything with these. We're not going to make you come up front and put these on display anywhere. This really is between you and God. And so you can be honest. Please be honest before God. I'm going to take this and put it someplace to remind me. I've written on mine thermostat. That means something to me from the story I just shared with you. I'm going to put this somewhere to remind me this is something I need to be working on. I need to put some energy toward this. Did Jesus die for it? I mean, is, can we talk about what Jesus has done with it, please? The first question, the most important question. We get, again, Nicene Creed. Who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate? You got anything along those lines? What does my baggage look like? Second question. This is kind of a fun question. The question is, why am I dragging it around? This is a philosophical question. Because you're a sinner by nature. Or even a question of theology in the church. We've been wondering about this for a long time now. Now, as um, we talk about the question of why, I think it's important to point out that usually we land in one of two what I would call extremes. 
in relating with our baggage. The first extreme is... I don't want to relate with my baggage. This. Way over here, I think some of us have a tendency to ignore the baggage. We ignore it. You say, well, I came to Jesus. He made everything all better. My past? What past? Nah, 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 nah. I, I'm not even going to deal with it because, well, I'm, I'm in Jesus now. It's kind of like getting into a car accident and you're having this big old gash in the side of your car and they're just filling it up with Bondo with that uh, putty that they sell and well, it's all good. Well, maybe. So Jesus' part in our salvation is applying Bondo to our baggage. <sighs> maybe. <laughs> That's not a permanent solution. It will fall apart eventually. Now, we over-spiritualize this extreme, the ignoring extreme. We point to passages of Scripture like 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, that says... Okay, now stop, stop. Whoa, whoa, hang on. We'll point this out here. Um, this is the first appearance of the Word of God in this sermon. And uh, i got to calculate how far into the sermon we are. 22 minutes, by the way, and uh, we are 47% of the way through this sermon. We are almost halfway through the sermon, and the first appearance of God's Word is now almost halfway through. And it sounds like he's going to quote a verse and then contradict it, which is not going to help his cause any, but let's continue. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you've heard this before, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Now, I believe we are a new creation in Christ. I... Why don't you spend some time explaining what that means then? I believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, but I don't think you can pull this out of context and use this to support this extreme. As a matter of fact, I would point out that the same person that wrote this, the Apostle Paul, he also wrote some other things in some other Scriptures. In Romans chapter 7, verse 15, he said, in this very autobiographical moment, as he shared honestly from his heart to the people he's writing to, he says, I do not, he's speaking of himself, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I think what he's talking about here, some of that baggage. Yeah, Paul wasn't talking about baggage. He was talking about his struggles and wrestlings with his sinful nature. And by the way, that section ends off with him saying, who will save me from this body of death? You see, he's talking about the struggle between our sinful nature and the new man. He wasn't talking about baggage. Those hurts, habits, and hang-ups, the sin issues in his life that he's been struggling with for a while. Sin issues. You know, when you talk about it this way, it just takes the edge off of it and turns it into something that sounds like it's not very deadly or dangerous. But sin, well, it damns, according to God's word. For a while, but he just can't quite kick the habit. He's being very honest. Yeah, he's a new creation in Christ, but there's still something from his past he has to deal with. He also says, what the passage doesn't say anything about him still having to deal with something in his past. Good night. Romans 7. Hang on a second here. What I'm going to do is I, I'm going to back up the audio just a smidge so you can hear this, uh, and then we'll correct it from the biblical text. Here we go. A graphical moment as he shared honestly from his heart to the people he's writing to. He says, I do not, he's speaking of himself, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, 
I do. I think what he's talking about here, some of that baggage, those hurts, habits, and hangups, the sin issues in his life that he's been struggling with for a while, but he just can't quite kick the habit. He's being very honest. Yeah, he's a new creation in Christ, but there's still something from his past he has to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, therapizing. Ther- is that even a word? He's therapizing Romans 7. Let me read it to you. Okay, by the way, I mean, this is after Paul just gave these incredible, strong proclamations of the gospel and salvation by grace through faith and not by works. Paul then goes on to write, Did that which is good then bring death to me? Talking about the law. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh and sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who does it, but it is sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, is that is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, but it is sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, So then I myself serve the law with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You you see what's going on there here? This is uh, what forms the basis of the doctrine of simulustics et peccator. That is, that we are simultaneously justified in Christ and still sinners this side of the resurrection. But then Paul then in Romans 8 starts off with, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, when you read this passage in context, context, you cannot therapize it which is what Stan just did. He also says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, by the way, I believe that the book of Philippians is one of the last books that the Apostle Paul writes. I think it's toward the end of his life. And so we can kind of follow this timeline of his life, and we see by the end of his life, I think he's still thinking along these same lines. In Philippians chapter 2, he says this to the people he's writing there, continue to work out your salvation with fear, and trembling, indicating that this, well, this is process-oriented. Yeah, I'm a new creation. Oh, boy, this is way bad. This is, <laughs> oh, man, he just biffed it. Um, Yeah, let's, uh, <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2. 
Let's hear again what Stan did with this passage. He quoted it out of context and is making a claim here that the text doesn't say when you read it in context. Let me back up the audio here. This is what happens when you try to syncretize Christianity with uh, something that that is foreign to Christianity and in some senses contrary to, such as, well, this kind of therapy thing going on here. Listen. But there's still something from his past he has to deal with. He also says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. By the way, I believe that the book of Philippians is one of the last books that the Apostle Paul writes. I think it's toward the end of his life. And so we can kind of follow this timeline of his life, and we see by the end of his life, I think he's still thinking along these same lines. In Philippians chapter 2, he says this to the people he's writing there. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, indicating that this, well, this is process-oriented, What's process-oriented? The whole working out your baggage issue? Paul wasn't talking about baggage, nor was he talking about the process of letting go of your baggage or any such nonsense. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read this in context by reading the entire chapter up to that point. Here we go. Let's get the immediate context. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice the uh, the obsession with Jesus here, that should be Stan's obsession, by the way, and it's not. Now Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I'm going to point something out. He ends at the end of verse 12, and there's a comma there, which means he didn't finish the sentence. Let me show you. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yeah, Stan left out the whole part about, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. By quoting Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 out of context, Uh, Stan was able to weave it into his private, psychologized, syncretized theology. But it's not biblical theology that he's teaching here. And he left out the vital part about it is God who works in you. Basically, if you just quote Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which, by the way, isn't the full sentence, uh, you make it look like uh, salvation or uh, or something here is something that you've got to do. But uh, the next part of the verse makes it clear, for it is God who works in you. Hmm. Stan left that out. Yeah, I'm a new creation in Christ, but I can't ignore that stuff. 
It's time to deal with it. That's one extreme. The other extreme we would find all the way over here, and we'll call this the blame game, or simply blame. This is an extreme. Now, we come by this position in the church honestly because we find it in Scripture. Actually, Jesus' very own disciples, those people that he spent all that time with pouring his life into, they landed in this extreme at least at one point. We find this in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. This baggage he has, it's an opportunity. Uh, blindness is, so blindness is a baggage. I mean, this is ridiculous. I don't, I don't even know what baggage means anymore uh, because, you know, apparently the, 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 the blind man had baggage and that baggage was his blindness. This is ridiculous. Can, can we get a clear definition of baggage, please, Stan? It's an opportunity to glorify God. Listen to that thought. There's hope to be found in that thought. So do you get what his disciples are asking? Okay, this guy is blind. It's got to be somebody's fault. Somebody's to blame. Either he sinned, and he's blind because of it, or his parents sinned, and he's blind because of it. Where do they get that idea? I actually think they get this idea from the Old Testament. Have you ever heard of the concept of generational sin? It's true, but I think misconstrued, it can really put us over here in this camp very quickly of playing the blame game. I think they get this idea of all places from the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter. Yeah, notice in both instances here, both of these extremes apparently come out of, out of the Bible. Uh, but, you know, but the Bible doesn't warn about either of these extremes. This is just Stan coming up with his own ideas here. For 20. God shares with his people, here's how I want you to live. And if you live this way, your life's going to be better, I promise. Uh, no, Exodus chapter 20, nowhere in Exodus chapter 20 say, does God say, hey, here's 10 ways just to make your life better. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. It's about making your life better. That's not what Exodus 20 says at all. I wonder what extreme we should call what you're doing, Stan. The first two of the Ten Commandments are all about idolatry. Don't worship anybody else. I'm the one true God, he says. Then the other eight are all about um, these things, these sin issues that we chase after. Sin issues. After Martin Luther, the reformer, Martin Luther. Oh, you're, you're, I'm sorry, but you do not have the authority to quote Martin Luther believe that those eight were actually redundant of the first two. Actually, if you get right worship right, if you don't have idols in your life, then the others kind of go away. Basically, his premise was that when you chase... Martin God, Luther never said that if you just get the first two commandments right, that the other two go away. Martin Luther, by the way, is one of the clearest teachers of the doctrine of simul justus et peccator. You do not know Lutheran theology, nor do you really know what Luther said or wrote. This is ridiculous. After coveting, when you chase after adultery, when you chase after stealing, all of those other of the Ten Commandments, that when you do that, you're creating a functional Savior for yourself. 
which actually is idolatry. In the context of worshiping idols, God gives this instruction to his people. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and following. He says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here's where they get this. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this gets repeated at least two other times I can find in those first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the law. That's what Jesus' disciples would have referred to this section of Scripture as. And they placed high value on this section of Scripture. It's repeated in your notes. If you want to look it up, we're not going to deal with it now. But almost verbatim, you can find that same language in Exodus 34 and Numbers 14. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at this. I think you can look at it through the lens that God intended it. He is speaking in that three and four generation language. He is speaking directly to the first generation. He's talking to parents. He's saying, parents, be, be so very careful. Because this home you have, it's a little seminary. You have the opportunity to raise your kids for the Lord. You have incredible influence on them. Be careful, because as you sin, it can have lasting effects on their kids, their kids' kids. Notice here that uh, sin apparently is environmentally taught rather than inherent in our nature. You get the idea. Now, the- now I should point out <clears throat> that this is inherent in our sinful, fallen nature. This is not inherent to human nature prior to the fall. We continue. The problem is, once you get to the third and fourth generation, or the 20 or 30th generation in the disciples' case, and you start looking backwards up the family tree, you see there's potential to be playing the blame game. That's just not helpful to anybody. But there's this concept of generational... Oh, man. This guy's... The tone in this guy's voice is so grating. It's that sappy therapy... Dulcet, oh, it's, it's just driving me nuts. Sin, and we're still asking the question, why? Why is it that I have to drag this baggage around? And the answer, well, it's part of our humanity. Let's, let's just normalize this a little bit, shall we? Listen, everybody has a weird uncle. I mean, everybody has somebody in their family tree they're not, they're not overly proud of. Every family on some level has some dysfunction. Every family. It's normal. And every human being, according to scriptures, is born dead in trespasses and sins and is a sinner. Everybody has hurts, habits, hang-ups because we all sin. We can normalize. No, it's not because we all sin. It's because we are all by nature sinners. That's the big difference. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. That's what the scriptures teach. This even further, if we were to look specifically at Jesus' family tree, we don't have time to read through it, but if you wanted to go to the very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, it's on page 669 in the seats underneath you. I'd encourage you to scan through this list. There are some stinkers in that list, right? There's, there's a prostitute that belongs to Jesus' family tree. 
There are some people who struggle with all kinds of sin, cheating, lying, some horrible things in that list. Let's normalize this. We're going to normalize it. It's part of our humanity. No, it's part of our sinful human nature. Actually, if you were to take a close look at that list, I'm talking just a few verses into the New Testament. You'll notice that the first four names on that list, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, that family tree, I mean, we can't look at all of those generations closely because their story is not told in detail in the Bible, but that family's is. The book of Genesis follows the story of that family. The reason why is because that's the family of the Messiah. There's some generational sin that takes place in that family. It starts with Abraham. Abraham had this issue. Now, the Bible, in the New Testament, it's, it, we're told that, um, that uh, Abraham believed in God, had faith in God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. He was a righteous man. He's By faith, you really need to take a lot longer and, and emphasize this point and really flesh it out. He still struggled with sin. He had hurts, habits, and hang-ups. One of them was lying. Ladies, can you imagine this? Abraham, on two different times, two different occasions in the Old Testament, somebody comes to him, and, and uh, actually they, they, they approach his wife, and they're kind of hitting on his wife. And two times, in an act of cowardice, he says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And that impacts, I'm sure, his kids. They, they see that, and they hear that. And his son, Isaac, and his wife, their marriage is marked by deception and deceit and lying. You follow it to the next generation, Jacob, their son. Jacob's very name means deception, deceit, trickster, lying. You go to the next generation, and there's all kinds of lying that's taken place in the story of the fourth generation. There's uh, an issue of, of favoritism that the parents are showing to the different kids in that family tree. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they have two kids, Ishmael. I, I, I am convinced that this sermon is the epitome of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab peoples. Isaac becomes the father of the Jewish people. There's still sibling rivalry taking place today, and wars happening between those two groups of people. But you follow that down through the generations. Favoritism leads to sibling rivalry, and each of the generations, first four generations of that family, deal with that issue. It culminates finally in the fourth generation. Judah is mentioned. He's one of ten brothers Because they're so jealous of their one brother, Joseph, because he's daddy's favorite, they try to kill him, and they end up selling him off into slavery, sibling rivalry. There's a generational pattern there. Why? Is it nature? Is it nurture? (laughs) It's kind of a fun question to think about. We've got a little experiment like that happening in our own house. We have five kids. One of our kids. Why don't you go to Ephesians chapter 2 that basically makes it clear it's nature. Corrupted, fallen, human nature. Uh, Whether it's nature or nurture, he can blame us for both. And we have uh, four kids we've adopted. And so we've got this little, it's kind of fun to watch that. You wonder how much of this is nature or nurture. But honestly, as fun as it is to think about that, that's not real helpful. Really, so it's not helpful when the Bible reveals that we are by nature dead in trespasses and sins, and by nature objects of God's wrath, and that because of Adam and Eve and their rebellion, every human being born uh, directly descended of them 
uh, in the natural way, is born dead in trespasses and sins with a fallen and corrupt human nature. That's not helpful. Notice we're reinterpreting the Bible through the lens of psychology here. Why is not the best question? As I said before, what is the best question? What are their specific hurts, habits, and hang-ups? What is their baggage that we can help them with? And as I examine my own life, what's, what is my baggage? And then the second most helpful question we're going to wrestle with is how? Can we do something about this? The how question. The question. Wait a second. Didn't Jesus do something about this? Again, I come back to the Nicene Creed. Who for us men and for our salvation was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate? The question is how do I unpack it? It's like Jesus. Where is 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 Jesus at your church at all? Does he get, does he get honorable mention from time to time? Has he done anything for us that you think might be worth mentioning here? Now, here's the thing. I can't be very specific in the application here because, quite honestly, I don't know what you have written down on that luggage tag. I don't need to know. I don't want to know unless you choose to share it with me. Honestly, that's between you and God. And as many tags as there are in this space, that's how many different specific action steps need to take place. Oh, boy. So this is all about the thing I'm supposed to do, all the action steps I need to do. What about the action steps that Jesus took that I just recounted from the Nicene Creed? But what, what I can do for you is give you some broad principles on how to unpack this. Now, these uh, that I'm going to give you, they're, they're not my principles. Actually, uh, I'm borrowing these from somebody else. I've... Okay, now I want to point something out here. Where is he going for the solution? I mean, here's, you know, apparently there's problems, right? You know, we all, we've all got family baggage. You know, we have been impacted negatively by the bad uh, example of our parents and and, uh, and, you know, and that we might have issues as a result of, you know, that family baggage. Now, where is he going for the solution to this problem that he's presented? He's not going to the Bible. Watch where he goes. I've got a couple of resources I, I want to share with you. This is a, a book I found very helpful. It's called The Emotionally Healthy Church. It's written by uh, Peter Scazzaro. Peter Scazzaro, uh, by the way, is, uh, is a guy who has basically uh, found a way to market uh, Roman Catholic mysticism uh, for the purpose-driven masses. He, uh, he, he spends time in a, in a, in a monastery every year. Uh, locked up with the monks and uh, has learned their spirituality and has repackaged it in this emotionally healthy spirituality stuff. And uh, so so now I'm supposed to go to Pete Scazzaro, who basically is a functioning Roman Catholic in purpose-driven garb, uh, as the salute to give me the solution to dealing with my, quote, family baggage. Lovely. Um, Pete is a, uh, a pastor. Um, and uh, one day his wife came to him and said, I'm leaving the church. And uh, he said, why? Good question. And she said, because I don't respect the pastor. That's a problem. He, why? Well, because you've got all of these hurts, habits, and hang-ups from your past. Your baggage is weighing you down, and it's affecting your leadership. It's affecting your life, affecting the, the people around you. It's not healthy. You need to get some help. And He did. And it's been a redemptive process, and God's... Yeah, why don't you talk about how he spent time in the monasteries, how that was all part of his redemptive health? Come on, 
Why don't you tell him that story? Used him in some amazing ways. He's written a couple of books. His church is growing and thriving. I would highly recommend this book to you, The Emotionally Healthy Church. While I'm talking about resources, um, I should share this one with you. This is called uh, What Your Childhood Memories Say About You. And then it's subtitled, And What You Can Do About It. It's written by a Christian psychologist. His name is Dr. Kevin. Yeah, by the way, um, is, is his book found in the New Testament or the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, anywhere in the Bible? Layman. I happen to know both of these. You, they can order for you in capstone. I think they sold out of the copies they had, but they can order it for you and get them for you pretty quickly. I want to share with you these three broad principles, and I, I just I want to encourage you. You might want to write these down. These are from um, Pete Scazzaro's book, The Emotionally Healthy Church. The first one is this. Identify how your family shaped you. Spend some time turning over the rocks in your memories and in your past kind of actually gets to the first question we talked about, what? This should help you identify what what is my baggage. Here's some of the questions he encourages us to kind of process through and to think about. Here's one. He says, describe each family member with three adjectives and their relationships. He says, describe your parents' relationship. He he says, uh, how was conflict handled in your family? Is there anger? Tensions, you heard some of our Ask Northview people share the answer to that question. Here's a good one. How were gender roles and authority worked out in your... Now notice, because this is all stuff you have to do, this technically falls under the category of law. This is what you have to do. Yet, again, when you're hearing the Christian faith preached, you are hearing all of the things that God has done for you who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and he was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. Um, yeah, Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, it ain't, a, it ain't a Bible book. And it's based upon Roman Catholic mysticism. Your family, there could be some baggage attached to that. How well did you see your family do in talking about feelings? How would your family describe you? How do you think your family thinks about you? It's a self-awareness question. Were there any family secrets, such as pregnancy out of wedlock, incest, or major financial scandal? What was considered success in your family? Were there any heroes or heroines in the family, scapegoats, losers? And a good question, why were you one of those? How has that shaped you today? That's a good question. What kinds of addictions, if any, existed in the family? Here's a question. Were there traumatic losses in the past or present, such as sudden death, prolonged illnesses, stillbirths, miscarriages, bankruptcy, or divorce? First broad principle is to identify how your family shaped you. The second one is to discern the major influences in your life. This could be both inside the family and outside the family. But what are those major things that have shaped you? I shared with you earlier that um, my mom discovered she had cancer when I was in fifth grade. 
That same year, my dad graduated with his Ph.D., he was working a full-time job. So a major piece of uh, your healing here is, is, is self-discovery. It's all about you discovering yourself. It's all the, you know, hmm. Going to school full-time. As an adult, looking back on that. And by the way, this is not synonymous with repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Not even close. I have to suspect that that was a very stressful time in my family of origin. And for the next seven years, there was some chaos there. I need to own that. I would be absolutely foolish, absolutely foolish, if I didn't think that, that has shaped me in some pretty big ways. Let's go back to that list of genealogy. Jesus, family tree. If you were to read down uh, another paragraph or so after Abraham, you would find King David. I actually want to read this out loud to you because the way it's written is incredibly insightful. It says this, David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's an interesting way to phrase it, isn't it? Why? Well, because uh, it gives some insight into some family dysfunction that took place there. King David was king over Israel. Family dis- dysfunction. Really? Inside, where are all the big passages of the Bible that talk about this family dysfunction? David's sin was is called in the Bible what it was, adultery and murder, not dysfunction. Midway through his reign, he fell to moral temptation, sin. He had an extramarital affair with Uriah's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. Uriah died. David ended up, you know, marrying Bathsheba. He wrote the 51st Psalm, an act of repentance. God restored him, but there's repercussion to sin. Solomon was a child of that union. And um, I, the Bible doesn't talk about this so much, but I just wonder, I think it's human nature, don't you think it's possible there might have been a bit of whispering that took place in the palace when Solomon was a young boy? Never talks about it in the Bible. That's Solomon. It's Bathsheba's son. David fell to sexual sin. David's the father in that family. The son, Solomon, he becomes king when David dies. Solomon, uh, he had his own sexual issues. The Bible says he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. Think there might be a little bit of sexual issues there that he's struggling with? Now, the deal is he brings all of these wives into the kingdom. Many of them are from outside, and they bring with them their own idols. Remember, we looked at that verse earlier, that the sins of the father can affect the next generations up to the third and fourth generation. And it's about worship, false worship. Well, Solomon brings in all of these wives from outside, and as they're worshiping other gods, there's this snowball effect that takes place, and it's not long before that nation is going a different direction. They're not worshiping Yahweh God anymore, but many of them are following these false gods, these false idols. Generational sin. Now, it's said that Solomon was the uh, wisest man who ever lived. I wonder... I wonder if he was self-aware enough to look at how this was a major influence in his life. His dad fell to sexual sin. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if King Solomon stayed awake at nights just going, 
I just wonder psychologically if if I turn over the stone, what action steps that I can take towards uh, wholeness and healing. And I wonder if he ever examined that in his own heart. The second broad principle is to discern the major influences in your life, and the third one, uh, the third one is to submit to becoming reparented by the church. Submit to becoming reparented by the church. Now I got what. Reparented by the church. What are you talking about? I gotta be honest with you. The first time I read that, I thought, really? That, that seems kind of cheesy. Almost as cheesy as my baggage claim pun. Not quite as cheesy. Really being reparented by the church. But the more I thought about that, the more I thought, that's kind of genius. You see, there's this sociological truth. I believe it's true. I, I was a student minister for a long time, and, and uh, I used to tell my students, not in some kind of a, you know, fatalistic fashion, but I used to tell them, you show me your friends and I'll show you your future. I think there's a certain amount of truth in that statement. I would go and visit them, high school students, at lunchtime. and I would sit at a table with the goth students. They're all dressed in black. They shape each other. I go sit at a table with the jocks and they're all wearing sporty clothes and sneakers, right? Go and sit at a table with the cheerleaders. And if it's a pep assembly day, they're all dressed exactly the same. Our culture shapes us. I think the same is true in the church. This is why we talk so much about W plus 2. We encourage you to be relationally in worship and to be relationally in life groups and to relationally serve together because we really believe that over time that has an ability to shape us. We can be reparented by the church. You come from a dysfunctional family. Let the church reparent you. That's a great strategy for the long haul. I was thinking about that. This Who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. Where is Christianity in this sermon? I don't, I'm not hearing it. Last uh, Friday night, our life group was at our house, and we, were, we just started a study on parenting. And it was so encouraging for me as we talked around the circle and we shared, you know, what's going on, what's working, maybe with some of our struggles. It was so encouraging and challenging for me. And then I got to thinking about this yesterday. Of course that works. Because the people around this circle, we all have our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's our long-range goal. We want to be more like him. And as we're, you know, parents for this season of our life, we can just kind of share with each other. Of course that works because we're going the same direction. It's helpful. I believe it's possible to be reparented by the church. Yeah, great. Uh, you got a single passage that says anything even remotely close to that? Some of you are sitting there and you're saying, Stan, this thing I've written on my baggage tag, I don't have, I can't afford the luxury of years. Uh, this is crisis. You need to work on this now. I would still say that this principle works. We can be reparented by the church because I love the, the analogy in Scripture that we're the family of God. Inside the family of God, there are some people who have the spiritual gift of discernment, the spiritual gift of wisdom, and they've, they've spent years working on those gifts in their life. They've gone to school. They've practiced this. They're counselors. And I don't think there's any shame in paying them to help you get some clarity in this issue. If you came to me and said, I have cancer, I would ask, are you seeing a medical doctor? You need to get treated for that. 
You come to me and say, I'm struggling spiritually, and I'm struggling with my emotional health. I say, are you seeing a pro? They can help you with that. So if that's where you find yourself, would you call us? Give us a call here, any of other pastors. We would love to talk to you, help you, and connect you, refer you with somebody who can help you. My email address is stan.killabrew at northviewchurch.us. Email me, and I'll help make that happen. Love to see you get connected with a professional. Well, we're back to where we started, and I want to finish by reading to you aloud that baggage claim again. This is what we said. Let's recognize that we were shaped in some profound ways by the incubator we grew up in. It's just true. But let's also recognize that there is no baggage too heavy for our Lord to lift. So he's a good baggage lifter. That's great. How does that help me exactly? And so I want to end this time together right now by inviting our God into this process. So we're going to invite God into the process of what? And ask him to help us do the heavy lifting. Oh, so Jesus, the reason why it's important that Jesus can lift heavy things is because you're really the one who has to lift it. He can help you get it up on your shoulders. Got it. So I'm going to invite you right now to go ahead and grab that baggage tag that you've written on, and I'm going to encourage you to put it in between your hands just like this in a posture of prayer, partly because uh, I don't want the person next to you to have to look at it, and uh, this is between you and God. You, uh, you can keep this private, but mostly because I want to commit this to prayer right now. I want to lead you through a prayer time. I'm going to pause give you space to take your thing to God, and then we're done. Would you- Where is the forgiveness of sins? Where is the blood of Christ? Where is our crucified and risen Lord? Where, again, you know, Nicene Creed is our comparison point here, and the Nicene Creed being a summary of what the Scriptures teach, tell us that, you know, who for us men and for our salvation, Christ was incarnate of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. You know, that, all of that stuff for us and for our salvation. Are, you, are, are we getting any of Christianity from this guy? Oh, well, well I, I know. He, he had us write down our baggage on a slip, and now we're putting it between our hands in a posture of prayer so that we can ask Jesus to help us lift our baggage you bow your heads and close your eyes with me now normally i don't let guys like this pray for us but you got to hear the prayer our father god we thank you for our families lord i know that some of us in here today when we think about our family of origin we don't have fond feelings but lord we want to be in an attitude of thankfulness And so, if for nothing else, we thank you for our families. We thank you for the mom and the dad that got together. And Lord, that you used that union to give us life. And so, for our lives, we're thankful, we're grateful. And Lord, right now, I want to pause and give space for each of us to tell you specific things we're thankful to you for our families that you've given us. And God, just now, we lift up before you inside our minds as we pray silently. We thank you 
for the process we're talking about. And Lord, we've written something, many of us, on this tag. And um, you know what it is. Lord, you were there as it was becoming a hurt and a habit and a hang-up in our life. You've witnessed this. You know the depth of the pain in our heart as we struggle with this issue. So, God, we ask you. You know the depth of the pain in our heart as we struggle with this issue. What about the sorrow and contrition that we have offended a holy and just God, that we have literally uh, trampled on his word and uh, transgressed his holy law? You for wisdom. We ask you for courage as we seek to deal with it. God, we, we give it over to you. We ask you to help us carry this. So, so Jesus is going to help us carry our baggage. What a helpful Jesus that is. Give us specific action steps as we leave this place. In our spirit, you challenge us what we need to do next. God, we love you. We thank you that we By get the to way, be adopted into is this anything remotely close to the the same thing as repentance and the forgiveness of sins? I don't think so. The family of God. And it's your kids, your children. We pray to you now. We say thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you, Northview. Have a great week. We'll see you back again next weekend. So uh, group therapy there at Northview in uh, Carmel, Indiana, a, a very uh, affluent neighborhood, by the way, here in, in uh, the Indianapolis area. Um, wow, I'm sure this uh, is very appealing to uh, the crowd there in Carmel. Um, but I, don't, I did not hear Christianity. I did not hear the Christian message. I didn't hear Christ and him crucified. I didn't hear anything about what the triune God does, except for maybe help us lift our baggage. Yeah, I, I don't I don't need that kind of savior. I need the I need the savior who actually propitiates the wrath of God. Uh, the one who bleeds and dies as an atonement for my sin. That's the biblical Jesus. What we heard here, this is the therapy Jesus. Uh, this is the Jesus who wants to help you and be your therapist so that you can have the best possible life experience now. It's a light form of the uh, word faith movement without quite the word faith element, but uh, well, same results. You do, you follow these steps, the, these this this program, and and God will say, "Oh, look, Johnny is doing X, Y, and Z, and he deserves the the good life, and we'll make sure that you get it based upon your obedience." Yeah, this is. Uh, yeah, I hate to say it, but um, people are going to be sent to hell as a result of. You know, trying to have Jesus help them carry their baggage. So I uh, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And uh, thank you for your support, especially during the lean summer months. So what so what do you think? I you know, I'd love to get your feedback. Uh, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can be my friend on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, Pirate Christian. 
Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Yeah, he bled and died for you. That's what Christianity teaches. I don't know about this other baggage stuff. Um, good luck with that. Anyway, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.